I don't care what the blood alcohol is in an intoxicated person. It's what's on the paper, Jack. It's probably the most dangerous call that can be made in EMS. What we're doing is letting doctors know what the rest of the world does anyway, and they ought to know about it. Hey, Rick Bicotta, Greg Henry, coming to you, Risk Management Monthly, June 2013. Rick, we're back again together as a duo. <laughs> it's it's none of this Skype stuff, and uh, what can I say? It's sunny California. How can you not like this? And, you know, in the last two months, I've been in five countries. I've done... Uh, yeah, you were in Scandinavia. I, I the, the Swedes were very nice, and they asked me to, uh, to open the Swedish... Uh, society the of meatball society. It's not the uh, Swedish Meatball Society. It's the Swedish. You know, if there are any, if there are any members of the Swedish Society of Emergency Medicine listening out there, um, I'm sorry about Rick. I really do have to I apologize. Know about IKEA and uh, what else are the Swedes known for? Yeah, well, maybe a little vodka. Yeah, th- th- those those are the Russians, oh, Rick. Okay, but but uh, they invited me. I. Um, Gave some talks, and we had a very, very nice time. You were gone for like two or three weeks in the I, I was weeks? very busy, went to a few other countries as well, and uh, uh, we're the talk of Europe, Rick. You, <laughs> oh, talk, yeah, you, you sure. stop people on the street, and they say, you, Greg? They say, uh, yeah, you yeah. know Rick Bucata? And I said, yes, I do. And they oh, and, and they just want to shake my hand because I know you. I mean, it's you're just internationally famous, Rick. What can <laughs> I say? All right, listen, <laughs> enough of the BS. Mm. You have a letter from... Uh, uh, we're not going to mention anybody's name. Okay. Yes, right. Okay. All right. All right. This is one of our longtime uh, listeners, though, who... Um, one of the two? One of the two, yes, <laughs> yes. The, our, Your fact, mother, my mother. Yeah, that's right. All of our listeners are meeting at a phone booth down the street, Rick. But um, he writes a medical legal question for us. And this is still an area of concern to emergency physicians. It really is. And I, I think we have to be on, spot on with this answer. He says, I had a patient come into the ER last night after a motor vehicle accident. Um, She was at the scene. The police came to the scene. Uh, She got brought in by ambulance. Now, the police didn't put her under arrest. They didn't send anybody to the hospital. They're not charging her with anything. But what they but what uh, he says is after being in the ER and being worked up, she admitted she'd had some alcohol and some Xanax before getting into the car. Well, you realize, Rick, about this time you and I would have to admit or at least I would have to admit to that as well. She subsequently hit a tree and the police didn't realize again that she was intoxicated. So the ER doc's question is this. Wait a minute. This sounds like the Tiger Woods story. Yes, exactly. No, no. Did a husband come after with a golf club? Uh, no, yeah, no, no, no. Right, right. Okay. And uh, everybody is... Uh, All right, jumped the gun. Here. Everybody was saying it was lucky that Elon Woods had a two-iron, because <laughs> not even God can hit a two-iron, you know, so it's Oh, you've right. been waiting for that one <laughs> yeah, for a long yes, time. Yes, I have, yes. That's been in the storage. Uh, in this case, he asks, should the ER physician report to the sheriff, i.e. pick up the phone, to prevent further motor vehicle collisions. Uh, 
Well, uh, the doc in this case also did a blood alcohol on the patient. Getting chest pain over. Uh, I know. I understand you're getting chest pain, and um, I had a little discussion with him. Uh, we had a little phone conversation, and he said her examination was clean. She had no uh, inebriation. Or clinically. N- clinically. Her her finger-to-nose testing and her blood alcohol was half what is required in California to be considered intoxicated. Not much. No. So he's asking really three questions here. Number one. Is he under any obligation to do anything? No. No. Okay, let's just get that clear. You could advise the patient that that's not a good idea, but in terms of reporting, so California has this statute, um, and you know the variability. Yes. But but the one in California is uh, a disorder characterized by lapses of consciousness. Right. And uh, so uh, that's a very broad kind of thing, you know. Uh, Right. It could be epilepsy. Uh, it could be, frankly, it could be an insulin-taking diabetic who goes unconscious every once in a while. You know, that could. That, one of the things to do is to err on the conservative side and let the state figure it out. You know, all you have to do is report it and let them investigate. Let them decide if they want to report. Do what do you do? Yell out the window? Is there a place that you're call? It's the Department of Motor Vehicles, isn't it, Rick? Right. And the hospital actually will uh, often just do the paperwork for you. But you have right. to be careful because you and I have talked about instances where reporting was delegated to somebody else who never did it. Oop. You remember those yes. cases? Yes. By the way, th- those cases are also uh, carry over into infectious disease. You know, because the hospital lab generally takes care of notifying Mm -hmm. the Department of Public Health. I have those cases where, for some reason, that culture result fell between the cracks, so to speak. And and, uh, we had to do, there was a problem, and uh, somebody's wife was not happy about the results. Sometimes it's the hospital's obligation to make reports, right? Particularly like in infectious disease. I don't uh-huh. think it's the doctor's obligation, right? But in the case in California of disorders characterized by lapse of consciousness, I think it. You know, I can't say for for certainty, but I believe it is the doctor who determines that and initiates that process and is responsible for that process. Because many, many, many years ago, there was a neurologist. Who did? Who thought a patient had pseudo seizures? And I, rem- I think I mentioned this a long time ago. Uh, who had thought the patient had pseudo seizures, and the patient actually had a quote unquote pseudo seizures and ran into a school bus, <coughs> and uh, the uh, neurologist was sued successfully, and his malpractice insurance carrier did not cover him because the, st- the neurologist broke a state law in not reporting this case right malpractice insurance does not cover anything which is a willful violation of the law so uh you know i don't know i do know that his wages were garnished to pay the whatever the uh thing is called that that his fine or whatever or whoever sued him or whatever um all right so let's get on so the answer is no you don't need to report this Num- and, uh, the and second it, wh- one is... And why is that? Why don't we have to report this? Because well, it doesn't qualify. It doesn't qualify. Number two, uh, there's no there's no accident here where there's a, 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 a deceased 
person, anything like that. There's no other actions coming up. And lastly, he says the examination was clean, was clear. So why would you get a blood alcohol at all in this patient, Rick? Um, honestly, I think it would be the unusual occasion where a physician <laughs> would measure a blood alcohol. I don't even... I don't care what the blood alcohol is in an intoxicated person unless I'm concerned that that patient has a head injury that is causing this, could potentially be causing this problem. Because you and I have heard of these cases where people think, ah, he's just drunk. They let him in the room yeah, for yeah. two, three hours. And the fact of the matter is they get a, he has a brain injury from a bleed and he's going down the tubes and you sat on him. Yeah. And mostly those are cases where the examinations were weak. Because most people who have expanding epidurals or subdurals have different exams than those people. Well, these who probably yeah these these patients were probably weren't even adequately examined. Right. They were just and they're drunk and they're put aside and nobody wants to deal with them. That kind of thing. He's just just drunk. That's the phrase. Just drunk. Right. Um, so, I I don't think that this person had no indication for blood alcohol to be drawn. No head injury. They were not acting strange or goofy kind of thing per the doctor's own uh, testimony here. Uh, Why would you possibly order a blood alcohol? No, I have no idea. But uh, what we're saying, good reader and listener, don't do that. And, And there's no reason to pick a fight to report something to the police that is not required. You are the agent of the state. On, on very specific sorts of things, child abuse, infectious, certain kinds of infectious diseases, elder abuse, elder abuse um, all these sorts of things, you are required and function as the agent of the state. You do not do that in someone who you really don't have any evidence that this accident was related to any ingestion. They, they are, they, they, some of it took place, but clearly what you've shown us is they're not intoxicated. This is repetitive for those of you who have heard this before, but the reason I don't think blood alcohol should be done in intoxicated patients is because you want to decide when it's, cl- it's safe for this patient to go home. A blood alcohol relates to the safe operation of a motor vehicle. Uh, but the fact is, is that to the extent that you have an exam of an intoxicated patient and you feel, I'm going to be able to send him home with his brother. I don't think anything's going to happen. He's, he's able to walk reasonably. It's clear he's got speech is a little, little slurred kind of thing. Unfortunately, the metabolism of alcohol is straight line. So if you measure a blood alcohol at 2 a.m. in the morning, the forensic pathologist will tell you what it, what, what it is at 4 in the morning. And if you let them go home at 3 in the morning, they can say, well, this patient was still obviously intoxicated. You're just putting a nail in your own coffin. Don't do that. Yeah, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that either. So uh, I guess we've, we've beaten that letter to, letter to death. Let's move on. <clears throat> okay. We got an article. On. We oh, got yeah, an we article do. here, sir. Um, and, and let's quote this one correctly. When a provider leaves, colon, 10 things practices can do to protect themselves now. And uh, this one uh, is, is a fairly interesting article. This is the American College of Radiology. But we all have colleagues, and for various reasons, they leave the practice. What does this mean down the road? Rick, tell us about it. Well, this is written by uh, an attorney. And yes, it is focused on 
a practice like radiology where you have uh, patient lists and uh, referral patterns and things like that. So not all of it relates to emergency medicine, but I think the vast majority of it does. And many, many, many of us have had over our careers physicians who have left under the not the most pleasant of circumstances. Right. And you wonder uh, what recourse they may have in terms of un, uh, you know what may be viewed as inappropriate termination of you know, independent contractors. Hopefully, you know, it's much more difficult if these physicians are now employees of yours kind of thing. There's many more rules that you have to file than the independent contractors. So this guy came up, came up with 10 things. Um, Greg, why don't you start off? Well, this has to do with people who are quote-unquote employed. I'm not sure how it extends to the independent subcontractor, but all employed providers should have a written agreement of some type. I mean, there's a contract. You need to follow the absolute dictates of that contract as to how you're going to let somebody go. Then, without a written agreement protecting the group, should a physician leave under those unusual circumstances, does he have recourse against the organization? Let, let me tell you a case I'm involved in now which is worth talking about because there's a lot of money involved. Most situations that we deal with are not for cause situations. If, if it's, they can give you 90 days or 60 days, they can give a, give you a letter, which simply says at the end of these 60 days, we will no longer do business. I spent, I had a 38 year career with, with with uh, 60 days security but were you an independent contractor yes well even you if you're an employee no no even if you're an employee in most states and particularly at our level it's what they call a not for cause employment which means you are not obligated as the employer to come up with specific things they oh, did really? wrong you could just summarily fire somebody yeah and if you, it's in your agreement yeah absolutely if it's in your agreement and we have had to do it several times because the last thing you want to do is is have a fight about it. Well, this is a problem where um, a woman got into it with the emergency department director. She's a, uh, one of the physicians. And he said, okay, in 60 days, you're gone. And she, and, and, uh, she said, well... Why is this and why is that? And, you know, this, there was this thing that went back and forth. And then he made the serious mistake of starting to list why. You don't have to list why. Because if he comes up with causes, then she can refute the causes. If you say, because that's what the contract says, mm-hmm. <clears throat> then it is done. And I, and I think that uh, physicians do not understand the law in this area. If it's a not-for-cause contract, you can be let go, not-for-cause. Did you see this thing where they talk about, I didn't know this at all, this thing called the statute of frauds? Yes. It says the law requires certain elements of an agreement to be in writing. You cannot do them by handshake. And if it is not in writing, even if there is no dispute as to the terms... The agreement may be unenforceable as a result of what's called the statute of frauds, which is listed in here. I can, we'll put this into the notes. I'm not going to read the statute of frauds to you, but the fact of the matter is 
there's a list of things that you have to have in writing. But you know that, Rick, because, uh, well, you know it because your wife's an attorney. But the but second she doesn't th- deal with this stuff. Yeah. But the, no, uh, if, for example, in the state of California, you and I were to shake hands on the sale of your house, no uh, contract for property, for example, is valid unless it's written. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it is absolutely the case. So that's why an, a, a real estate agent always has you sign the the offer and put give a check for earnest money deposit because in the state of well, in fact, I I don't know whether it's all states, but certainly in the state of Michigan, state of California, no piece of paper, no earnest money, you don't have an offer on the table. So you got to be aware of the statute of frauds. Yes, they, yes, absolutely you do. Adopted from English law in 1677. It's been around a while. Yeah. That's very erudite of you, Rick. Well, no, I'm just reading when I wrote it. Oh, here, okay. Know. All right. I All had right. to look it up. All right. Very good. Um, Tell us some more about this. Make sure the agreement is current. Right. So you can't be dealing with an expired agreement. Agreement has to uh, can have a term and expiration date. Prior to an agreement's expiration, negotiate a new one. Or get an extension of the current one. Okay, yeah. Absolutely. In most jurisdictions, operating under an expired agreement is the same as not having one. Right. Uh, where does this come up all the time? Somebody's worked for you. They've worked for you for five years. You've never... See, the problem with contracts is we never pull them off the shelf unless what? We're in trouble. We're turning to shit. It's, it's like your fire insurance you've never read your fire insurance policy until your house burns down you have no idea what it covers well what this is basically saying is keep your keep your agreements up to date that means if you have a contract that has a 30-day out clause or a 60-day out clause or 90-day Make sure that it's still valid. Now, what most groups do is they do an evergreen contract, which means this will continue unless one party or the other raises an issue about the continuance of the contract. They also make the point that if your duties with the group changes and the current contract no longer reflects what you're doing, that uh, it is the obligation uh, of your employer to uh, modify the contract to reflect this new relationship. The yep. agreement should be updated to reflect the changes. So it's if it's left in the desk for a long time and now the guy becomes the assistant director kind of thing and has new responsibilities, uh, they should be uh, noted in this contract. Now, let me tell you where this, hap- this comes up all the time. And unfortunately, having been... Uh, a director of a group for a long time, we had just about every one of them come up. And when, whenever you've changed a job situation, you need to have a reflection of what the job is, how it, who's really responsible to, how the payment's going to be. Because the last thing you want is a fight when they leave over, well, we're just going to pay me out for the for the two years well, of this get, or that. We're, we're going to that. We're get to that. It gets ugly here. Yes. Number three, Gregory. Uh, restrictive covenants. Oh well, it's hard to talk about this dispassionately because this really was in the American College of Emergency Physicians a huge issue. One of the big things that kicked off AAEM 
was restrictive covenants. What is a restrictive covenant? It's one of those that says post-service, let's say I'm going to stop working in December. You've said, well, by the way, you can't work anywhere for two years that's within 50 miles of this particular hospital. That means if you've got a family, you know, a spouse, kids, all that sort of thing, you're then in the position of having to pick up stakes and move. And so restrictive covenant was one way that at least groups thought they could have some control over the physicians and a new group coming in. Because when a hospital administrator said, well, we're kicking your group out, you could say back to them, oh, yeah, who are you going to hire? Because all the guys who work here now can't work here. Mm-hmm. So the new group has to bring in everybody. That That is the quintessential issue of control between groups and the individual doctors who work there. This is a huge issue. They point out that violations of these agreements by the <laughs> departing physician can result in significant economic damages. Depends on the state. We have states in, the, in these United States, at least five of them, where uh, post-service restrictive covenants are unenforceable. We have others which have looked at them and say, yes, they are enforceable. Well, they say in most cases, these agreements are enforceable by courts if reasonable Reasonable. restrictions are applied generally no longer than three years. Yes. And the scope and area generally no larger than the area the practice attracts 80% of its patients from. Rick, understand three years... Three years is an eternity. How many young physicians could go without income for three years? Or they'd have to be driving huge distances to work. I think think this is a big issue. And, you know, it's funny. When I I, I counsel a lot of uh, senior residents who are looking at contracts in various places, they have no bloody idea what this concept is. And, you know, if they want to go to you know, this this thing or that thing, or they want to go to San Diego, by God, it's like they don't care what the piece of paper says until something goes wrong. And and then they're, then they're in trouble. Let, let's separate out uh, two issues. <clears throat> A post-service restriction is not the same as malicious interference of contract. Let me give you the examples. If... if uh, if you and your buddy say, you know, we can run this emergency department better. We're working here, but I think, I think the old fart who runs this place is an idiot. Why don't we go to the hospital administrator mm-hmm. and say, we'll take it. Plus, we'll give a $50,000 contribution to the building fund. And so they assume the contract. While they're still working for another guy. That's called malicious interference of contract. And... That is enforceable by triple damages, and you never want to get caught in the middle of that because uh, there is there is a, a reliance in law that if you work for somebody, you represent their economic interests as well. So to go behind their back is malicious interference, not the same thing as a post-service restriction. There you go. You know, one of the things I thought was particularly interesting is... Um, the physical area from which they this guy suggests that um, generally no larger than the practice 
area attracts 80% of its patients from, which right. is a relatively easy <clears throat> thing to determine kind of thing. Um, we get zip codes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it, in fact, it couldn't be simpler. Uh, what you're actually seeing, the trend in this country at this time, when you, when you talk to all the folks who run larger organizations, is they're, they're just not going to include uh, post-service restrictions. Right. It, I, I must admit that uh, I remember groups who specifically – in their advertisements about why you should come work for them because they're fabulous groups, you know, and yeah, you work, yeah. there's no nights or weekends and holidays and you, you can, that uh, they specifically... <laughs> wait, so wait, can I sign up with that group? Yeah. They specifically list no restrictive covenants right. as one of the uh, elements of, of how they do business. Now it's a competitive advantage as opposed to something which is punishment. Right. Well, you know, it's not quite the same as a radiologist uh you know, going to another group and taking referrals and patients and things like that. When you're an ER doc, you basically don't have any patients. There are yeah. the patients of the <clears throat> hospitals. It's not the same. We're not the business. That, medicine in general isn't like that. Uh, the real businesses, which are like this, are like law, where, you know, they leave at 2 o'clock in the morning and take 100 files with them, and then they've contacted those people. Radiologists really don't contact patients very much well, you know my brother is a veterinarian and um when uh very early on in his practice um the fella he was working for <clears throat> sold out from underneath my brother the practice to one of these professional and um this guy accused my brother of taking this patient list he, he never did that and there was no evidence that he did but the fact of the matter is is that if you're are in a private practice, you can envision that that patient list is extraordinarily valuable. Right, right. And the fact of the matter is is that a lot of these patients were seen personally by my brother kind of thing. So they would gladly go to him if he moved across town kind of thing. It doesn't really apply to emergency medicine. Number four, protect confidential and proprietary information. Now, this is... um, this is really doesn't refer to us specifically, except for the fact that the departing physician should not have access to patient lists. Uh, the mo- the, they must be classified as confidential and proprietary. Solicitation of all groups patients should be subject to substantial monetary damages and significant injunctive relief. Again, it really doesn't apply to emergency department. Might apply, apply to urgent care center kind well, of thing. There are some things that do apply, though, Rick. When somebody leaves, let's say they have the intimate details of the financial structure of the company. Let's say they've got all the policies and procedures, training manuals, all those sorts Mm -hmm. of things, which have been developed by the group. Who owns those? I mean, because you have a copy of it, and let's say you now go from group A to group B, do you have a right to use the competitive instrument of the first group? It's a very good point because it takes a lot of time and work to generate those procedure manuals and policies, and you spend lots of money on lawyers coming up with these agreements, and somebody right. just rips this stuff off from you. Right, exactly. And so, so uh, what some groups are now doing is as you rise to prominence – if you become a director or a regional director or something like that, you sign more involved uh, restrictions 
of what you can and can't do, who you can speak to, what you can do with all this stuff. Well, they point out specifically, and this does relate to emergency medicine, that a practice is expected to protect sensitive and confidential information and be made available to those people only on a need-to-know basis. Right. If you don't right. need to know it, you don't get you don't get it. You don't necessarily get the financials, etc. If you're an employee, and failure, catch this, failure of the group to reasonably preserve the confidentiality of such records may make an enforcement of these confidentiality claims unenforceable. Because you just let this stuff hanging around, and you know you didn't really protect it. Want a case? Sure. Um, <clears throat> Joe A. Um, and um, his wife are talking about salaries and the group, and he's unhappy, and he thinks the distribution is not quite right. Well, it just so happens that uh, one of the other members of the group, who's a little farther along, her wife meets Joe A.'s wife at the country club. They've had a little too much to drink. Now there's an exchange of unhappiness when one finds out what the other is making. Now one guy brings an action against the group saying, I don't like this distribution. Well, where did you find that out? Your wife told so-and-so at the cocktail party, and now it's a question of release of information. And so these things, which sound sort of ludicrous on the surface, they're not when you're talking about money. And, and uh, you know, these are things which are not funny to a lot of people. But uh, it, it, it does happen. I promise you that. You know, uh, number five is, um, uh, I don't know that uh, it super applies. Understand applicable ethical and disciplinary rules regarding medical records and patient contacts. Does the physician have the right to take copies of medical records of patients he or she has treated? Well, that's kind of interesting, well, actually. there's a three-parter here because in our business, the ownership of the record is not in the group. It's in the hospital mm-hmm. in most cases. If you're running a little cutesy practice or your own little urgent care, that's your stuff. But when you, the hospital is the one who maintains the records in our situation, and clearly the hospital does not want you running around with patient records. Uh, They just don't like it. If you're accessing a record for medical purposes, i.e. following up on your patient, you want to see how it came out, or or, you want to do this, that, and another thing, okay. If you're just taking the records to hold the records, the hospital isn't happy about that. Well, let's extrapolate this to an urgent care center setting where in fact there is the uh, oftentimes recurrent visits for diabetes or uh hypertension or those kinds of things sure. there's a lack of uh, community physicians and the, the, you like the urgent care doctor you get to know the urgent care doctor so the question comes up does the departing physician have the right or even the obligation to inform patients of the physician's new practice location Ooh, Ooh yeah. sensitive, sensitive. Yeah, because actually, you're acting now as kind of the private doctor of Mr. Smith. Right. Uh, you've been giving him his medications, his prescriptions, following following these kinds of things. Yeah. You have an obligation to say, I'm moving across town. Yeah, well, 
it, it, that's actually been litigated. And, and most of these patients are patients of the practice as opposed to the individual. Because doctors come in and they retire, they do this, they die, they're smacked. The, the physician himself is not the issue. It's the practice has certain obligations. to. Ma- After all, the physician didn't maintain those records himself. Now, I'm sure in his departure there will be a, something arranged where letters will be sent that he will no longer be functioning here as of this date. To patients? They, uh, you, well, they, here they have, to reinf- they have to inform them of this, Rick. These people need prescriptions written. They need things done. They've got to let them know that they're going to have to pick off the list and get a new physician, somebody to handle this situation. Yeah, they point out the, uh, the jurisdiction's applicable rules regarding medical records and patient contact should be determined and placed into the employment agreement. So it sounds like urgent care center, it should be put in there that you do not have the right to take the records of any patients that you've been seeing on a... I don't know if that's necessarily ethical or not, but you know it can be put in agreement. Whether it's held in the jurisdiction that you're in, they say most courts will bend over backwards to assure that continuity of care takes place. Right, exactly. But you know, again, we're talking about medicine here and emergency medicine and urgent care clinics and all that sort of thing. The rest of the world goes on around us. Engineering firms architecture firms, all these, they have the exact same problems. The legal community, as I pointed out, is rife with this kind of stuff. And so we, we should not think that this is personally about doctors. That w- What we're doing is letting doctors know what the rest of the world does anyway, and they ought to know about it. And as you m- mentioned previously... They say have accurate financial reporting to the extent any physician's compensation is dependent at least in part by revenues generated or financial performance of the practice, the records need to be accurate and defendable. Well, um, having been involved probably in the litigation of 30 or 40 contracts over all those years, um, fairly decent sized group, This, if you, if you are accruing certain things like profit sharing. Mm-hmm. Now you're gone in May. Well, the, the, the thing ends in June. What do you get? Do you have to be actually on the payroll, you know, July 1st? Or prorated. Is it prorated? Isn't it? And sometimes we're not talking small amounts of money, Rick. We're talking, let's say, let's say that quarter, you've got $60,000 coming. Uh, or maybe it's done at the half year. It's significant money. People do bring actions about this, and I have certainly sat in meetings where we had to negotiate uh, what that figure was going to be because we inartfully used the terms in the contract. Yeah, they say accurate records will decrease disputes over compensation because the departing doctor is basically going to want to challenge that number. And uh, if a departing oh, physician... By, by the way, let, let, while we're on that, the world's largest nightmare is if, is if it's laid open so you still get the accounts, re- a portion of the accounts receivable. Never do that. That is a, that is a nightmare. 
because you're going to be getting monies in. If you build today, over the next 12 months or 18 oh, I months. I can tell you it's, it's three or four years. Yeah. I mean, it, well, it diminishes pretty quickly. But the point, the point is, if you have to do that accounting over that period of time, and if the challenge to that accounting is, let me see the books, not accepting what the number is, let me see the books, it's hell to pay. Never, ever structure something where, where they, it runs out over time like that. Not worth it. If a departing physician can raise a significant question regarding compensation... This guy says courts are likely to be reluctant to enforce non-competition, non-solicitation, or confidentiality agreements. Yep. So this is a disproportionately sensitive area that could help invalidate a lot of the rest of the agreement. Right. Um, I, the, uh, the next one is one that all doctors get mad about. They hate this, and that is... If, you're, if your corporation or partnership is set up in a certain way where you have rules, like every quarter there has to be a meeting, there has to be minutes. I'll tell you, I've seen too many times where they had to dummy up meetings, uh, minutes for meetings, all this kind of stuff, because they didn't, hold, they didn't hold the process where I could be judged, I could do this. They didn't even have those meetings. Yeah, that is under the heading Observe Legal Formalities and Requirements. Right. Partnerships or corporations should take care to have their affairs in order. Regular meeting, corporate minutes, file any requiring state and federal documents and tax returns. Lax compliance with these rules may create an atmosphere of informality and uncertainty that may discredit credibility. Right. And piercing the corporate veil may also result. And we know a group <laughs> in this state yes. where um, they attempted to pierce the corporate veil. And I think they did so successfully. And the group countersued its attorneys in the process or something right. to that effect. But um, if you don't have your stuff in order, they can say your corporation is a sham. Right. Exactly. Yeah, ex exactly. And by the way, if we haven't said it on this course in this program in the last year, the law functions under something called the four walls concept of contract. It's what's on the paper, Jack. <laughs> uh, you don't get to come back. And I've heard this 500 times. Well, I thought they were going to make me a partner. They promised if I did this, they'd do that. And I always say the same thing back. Show me the paperwork. Okay, well, we were drunk at a Christmas party, and they said I'd be this or that. Four walls doctrine. A judge only looks at what's on the paper. If they made some other promise to you, get it in writing. Okay, you, you, can't, you can't run lawsuits that way. Here's a good one. Yeah. Maintain good relationships with support staff members. Staff loyalty to the departing physician to the exclusion of the practice can wreak havoc on a practice. Absolutely. Uh, so the nurses in the department can make it hell. Well, they, we're talking here, these are, you know, they're talking about radiologists, but actually you don't employ the nurses, and so in fact they suggest confidentiality agreements with key staff may help. Right. But you obviously can't do that with the nurses 
Uh, in but you, if you ha- are practice like your practice had employees that were you know working in the office and answering the phones and those kinds of things uh, that were not independent contractors, and this suggests that um, the departing physician can sub- substantially cause grief if the employees support this doctor over you well i <laughs> let me let me tell you one of those cases that everybody's going to shake their head over a gal was dismissed from the office uh a, a doc's practice doc's now you don't practice. mean a gal a lady uh, 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 yes i'm just trying she, to help you here she was dismissed well they didn't have an agreement that says your final check will come, you know, at the end of when we've tallied up all the books and this sort of thing. She had a company credit card. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. They were paying bills. Uh, and, and, you know, and after all, it's going to be another month till that card comes in. Well, she and her friends had lunch at a lot of places. Uh, they bought a lot of clothes. They did this and that and another thing. And, of course, it wasn't till now. It's almost a month that she's been gone. They did no withholding. They sent her her check. They gave her her three-week severance. They paid up her health insurance to the end of the quarter and done the entire thing. And there they're sitting. There needs to be an arrangement, a holdback, that says once we've cleared all particularly if they have a company card and those kinds of privileges, you got to have that. Um, when it comes to the staff in the hospital, particularly nurses, techs, all that sort of thing, you want an agreement out the door that they do not carry on conversation, that it is a private arrangement. You don't want them bitching, pissing, and moaning. But they're not your employees. Well, but they're that... The no, but the doctor who's leaving... You know, he does expect Can't his... Can't the uh, Don't the want pool. him to poison the well on the way out the door. Because, I, you know, there, there's always that person who's the favorite of the mm-hmm. nurses. Right. You know, no mm-hmm. matter what kind of care they give or all the other problems. And to have people pissing, bitching, and moaning, I don't think is a good idea. But, you know, uh, you can see situations where the nursing director of the department good buddy of the doctor who's yep. leaving starts going to administration yep stirring the pot here stirring the pot exactly uh and now i'm not quite sure what you can do about that um because there's no contractual kind of you thing. have one control that is you expect a reasonable letter of recommendation part of that will be our assessment of your of your ability to function and act professionally. Well, that's one of the other reasons where when people get terminated, now uh, all our physicians are independent contractors, but when people who are employees get terminated, it's like uh, Friday afternoon, clean out your desk, here's the the, the uh, security guard will walk you out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happens in nanoseconds, you're gone. Right. And then on Monday morning, they look around and say, what happened to Fred? You know, kind of thing. You, you don't keep on employees who are being terminated. Worst thing you can do is say you're done in two weeks. Right. No. Nope. Right. You're done today. Your salary continues for another two right. weeks right. or whatever. You got it. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, protect third-party payer relationships. Um, well, as it might imply, uh, relate to an emergency department, uh, provider agreements should be in the name of the practice, and pay-to addresses should be under the strict control of the group. Hold on. There is a problem here. Let's say they've got 200 undictated charts uh, that aren't signed off on that until they're signed off, you can't turn them over to the billing agency mm. that a third-party payer. That makes you very vulnerable. That makes you incredibly vulnerable. That's why one of the reasons to keep charts up to date is that this kind of thing doesn't happen. But there's almost always a clause that says, terminate, you know, uh, final checks will be sent uh, when all paperwork is completed. And I, I think that's a fair yeah, statement. Absolutely. Uh, you know, be- well, it's expected of a medical professional to complete their charting. It's a hospital medical staff rule. And even though when you leave, you're not likely to be- remain on the medical staff right. of the hospital because that's part of the contract that there's co-termination of privilege. Right. And lastly, uh, obviously, this guy recommends having professionals in place ready to assist with damage control. Have legal and financial professionals at the ready to provide calm, reasoned advice. Exactly what this guy does, but I think he's probably right. Well, here's where he's really right. Small groups often have like one guy, good old boy attorney, who handles everything. Well, that's like saying you'd go to a doctor for both your breast cancer uh, and your brain tumor. I mean, you don't do that. Uh, You should have access to people with very specific skills and don't think that one attorney will solve them all because that's just not right you know we uh, we have attorneys who actually work in our office and they farm that stuff out because the law changes so frequently and the court rulings change so frequently you got to have somebody in that state who understands what the business is at that moment in time Right. This is not the time to go in the cheap because it may be very expensive for you. So I think those are the 10 points that this uh, fellow covered. Rick, would you like some cases? Absolutely. Okay. We haven't done any. uh, We haven't done any good cases lately. Um, Here's a a case which um, when I actually tell you the number associated with this case, you're not going to be a happy camper. Okay, I'll just tell you that right now. Woman claims, and uh, this takes place in uh, New York State. Woman claims two emergency room visits and two caths, uh, two calls for ambulance failed uh, to properly uh, treat her. She develops infection, and they they have to cut off both hands and both feet. What? Isn't this terrible? Okay, let let. Let's talk about this for a minute. Tell me, how did this happen? She was in the ER twice for... Severe diabetic, 32 years old, began suffering pain in her abdomen and back in September 2008. She went to the Brooklyn Hospital where she... And by the way, this is a resolved case, so I don't mind using the name of a place. This is, this is court record, public record. Um, and somebody told her she was having a kidney stone. Okay, so they gave her some pain medicine, sent her home. The patient's uh, symptoms came back, and uh, she called an ambulance again a few hours later. 
the ambulance people noted that she had uh, Tylenol number three, something that was prescribed. The patient was not transported to the hospital. Oh, this must be EMS kind of thing. Oh, is this, is this ugly. Um, about 10 hours later, the ambulance was called again. The plaintiff, the lady, reported numbness of her lips and toes and suggested that she was suffering side effects from her Percocet. She also had some Percocet. The ambulance crew found no uh, abnormal vital signs, and again she wasn't transported and signed a document which indicated that she had been offered transport. But at the time, 12 hours later, she's back in again. She did have an obstruction in the ureter. She did have a sepsis. This went into a disseminated coagulopathy, and it turned to hell. I mean, it was, it was the case from hell. Now, the ambulance people swear that the document they gave her said on it, refusal of transport. They have a copy. She claims they didn't explain it and that she thought she was just signing for treatment, not for the refusal of transport. So this becomes a he, sh- he said, and there were four he's involved here, uh, two sets of ambulance drivers, and she, and uh, it didn't go in the provider's direction. Well, you know, it sounds strange. The patient is calling an ambulance right. twice, and both times she doesn't get transported. But right. that's what, isn't that what she wanted? Exactly. That's she, what I would think. She called them to, and, and, to get a ride. And why she signed against, and, and they have the two documents in any event, um, uh, this was a $17.9 million settlement um, in this case. Some went to the amb- against the city of New York because the city of New York runs the ambulance service. Um, so, some of it went, a small amount of it went against the hospital and a, a doctor who saw her. There were some other issues here. All I can say is um, if, just signing the paper may not be enough. Maybe it'd be nice if they said, you know, we begged her to come in. Or if they'd had family members also sign the paper who'd heard the discussion, it would have been better. But this is a $17.9 million case. Well, you know, the strange part about it is I would think a jury would say she called twice. They didn't transport her twice. Yep. She obviously wanted to be transported to the hospital. That's why she called. This was not a call by a third party. And so it, it does sound a little wacky. $17 million is a, is a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And, and uh, you know, there's no science here. There's, no, there's nothing that says, uh, um, well, if they'd only given her this or that. This is a transport question. You know, EMS suits are really very, very uncommon. They are. And, and, you know, I've done a certain number of them over the years, but most people kind of like their EMS people, and most EMS people actually do want to transport. Um, but I'll tell you what's going to happen in cities. Uh, city of Detroit's a good example right now. Um, is that still a city? It's, well, it's, it's trying. <laughs> uh, but the EMS system has essentially fallen apart. So the waits are long. 
and people are using it as taxi cabs. So the, what's happening is the EMS people are acting more and more as their own screening agent in the field. Some of these things are going to happen. You can buy a lot of ambulance uh, transport for $17 million. Yes, you can. Um, it would seem that leaving people at the scene should have a protocol that involves the base station. Uh, that, in fact, you advise the base station of what's going on and you know have them kind of get a sense of this. Because the EMS people, honestly, are not physicians. They're well-intended. They're probably well-trained for what they do. But ultimately, it's, a, it's probably the most dangerous call that can be made in EMS is to leave somebody at the scene. There are the just drunks, which in fact have the subdural hematomas. The you know, there's that's the highest risk I think that you can do. Yeah. EMS is leave them at leave them at the scene. God, it's it, it's just awful. Um, the, there are in other areas of medicine, not not just emergency medicine. There are questions that come up uh, that are are just they they bump up against what we do for a living. They're not against us, but you got to uh, kind of figure it out here. And one of those is is I've got a case, and it's almost un- unbelievable. This has to do with a failure to place a man with liver failure on a transplant list. Hmm. Failure to, and, and this is this is a societal moral question. When I was in Europe last month. The Germans announced that if you've been into drug rehab three times, that's it. They're not going to do it again. Well, they do shoot you. Well, <laughs> the Germans, come on. I understand that. But what they basically said was, we've looked at the, our, our data, and your chances of being successfully treated after three times are so small, go home. It, they made a societal decision. This is how much space we have. This is what we're going to do. Well, in this case about the liver failure, uh, this, this, the decedent had a history of alcoholism. The hospital had a policy that they were put no one on the transplant list who had not been without alcohol for six months. They had to be clean for six months because of their data that says if they continue to drink, uh, their new liver uh, turns to crap, and it, it, it wasn't worth the deal. And that was what the suit was about. And the physician who was sued in this case was the uh, head of, of, of renal transplant. who basically, Liver transplant. Li- uh, yeah, liver transplant, who was sued because he would not put this patient on the list. The patient went on and and died. And he had to go on and defend the fact that I'm sorry, not all people are of the same risk of getting this procedure to work. And uh, this, this went to trial um, in, in uh, a state which will remain unmentioned at uh, this moment in time. And uh, the jury sided with a doctor. This was a defense verdict that said, yes, the hospital and the doc did have a right to prioritize who lived and who died based on their set of rules for success of the operation. Boy, that seems a little strange because um, my, not that I know the facts on this, 
But there are these regional organ procurement organizations that uh, harvest these organs, and I think they got to have something to do with having the um, criteria for getting you on the list. And in fact, it's interesting because there are some regional variations. Steve Jobs, Jobs, yeah, Jobs, Steve you know, Jobs, right, yeah. He got a uh, liver transplant in a, some small state where, in fact, the list was much shorter mm-hmm. than it was in California. So I guess you can, uh, if you know how to play the game, you can uh, you can deal with this. But it would seem to me that there are clearly, this is a very straightforward question. Do people who have alcohol problems, are they entitled to a transplant if they've had any history of alcohol in the recent months yeah yeah it's not a history of alcoholism in the past it's are they currently using and this doctor who ran the service basically said i will not apply for you uh to get a liver based Hmm. on your behaviors and well i i think it's reassuring that at least he made a straightforward decision and the public backed him up on it that the uh, the case uh, he was found not guilty. Well, I can see that there's two sides to to this. Uh, you got anything else in there you want to tell us about, or is this about it? Chief? Is this about it? I mean, I thought that was a I thought that was an interesting case, only from a because I think what we're going to see are more moral and ethical cases where we start about denial of service you you do have another case about um a pregnant woman with a uh, possible pe and don't you want to you want to talk about that one um let's let's see if we can do it all right come on all right you sure you want to hear this story yeah i do <clears throat> i do because it's it's very er specific and um yeah, go, yeah. give it this give it this is from one of our listeners and we appreciate always appreciate cases coming in a um, yeah you know we actually welcome this stuff yeah oh no absolutely and greg has been extraordinary he actually talks to a good number of these physicians because giving an answer through an email is often very difficult kind of thing you need some back and forth right and so you've been very generous with your time. Well, uh, thank you. And and but in this particular case, it, it's an interesting case. It's a uh, young woman, 24, 25, who is pregnant. She comes in and she's taken a home pregnancy test, and they repeat it at the hospital. She's probably by dates. She's probably two months, eight weeks into this. She comes in with the onset of uh, pleuritic chest pain feeling a little short of breath. Actually, her pulse ox is normal. Emergency doc does a D-dimer on her, which comes back at uh, 6.01. Now, most people, I think, are looking at the D-dimer these days as it's a yes or no test. Yeah, the 500? 500, well, 500 is the number which I think our lab uses, but nobody's proven yet that you can stratify the D-dimer by saying an 800 well, actually, is worse than a 600. Some people have actually, there is some literature about that, um, suggesting that cutoffs could be modified to increase the 
sensitivity of the, or pardon me, the specificity, <laughs> specificity, specificity right? Exactly. Exam. And you know, people talk about pregnant women have a a higher level of D-dimer just or because they're pregnant. Yes. You know, but I've never seen any good data on it that nope. said you know we looked at. You know, 50 women uh, who are pregnant at, at at this phase of their pregnancy. It's just kind of like you hear it repeatedly, but I don't know that it's true. It, well, it may be true. Our emergency doc in this case uh, did consult some high-risk OB people. In fact, he even consulted one at his hospital who said, would you call this other high-risk OB doc mm-hmm. at another hospital? So what this comes down to is what... Uh, what is the threshold for doing an evaluation for a PE in a pregnant person? Well, there's two things. It's not just what is the threshold. It is uh, what is also the study of choice. Right. I mean, because because you're going to run into difficulties both ways. And uh, we all know that when you're shooting that many rads at a chest, uh, there will be some of it. Uh, head to the head to the head to the fetus, and you're giving dye. Now to make this case even more complicated, this woman is allergic to everything: shellfish, uh, tape, uh, you name it. She's got an allergy to it. So now you're sitting there thinking, I've got to give a a contrast material of some kind to well, somebody. Yes and no. Well, and they're and they're pregnant. So, I mean, where does that come down? Where does that fall out? You know, there have been people who've made recommendations from some societies about how to approach these patients. And um, actually, we have an abstract that we're doing now. I wish I could tell you the name of the society. And as a matter of fact, maybe in the notes, I'll put the abstract. Include that in, right, yeah. But in any case, um, there is this issue of uh, mutagenic effect. And and um, well, my baby has six fingers, kind of thing, right? Which is not really the issue. Once these babies are formed, they're formed, and you're not going to cause it a problem. But the issue is cancer in these uh, in these children because they're particularly vulnerable. And the idea here is is that most young women are going to have a normal chest X-ray, and that if you have a normal chest X-ray, then they become candidates for uh, VQ scans. Right. And there are societies who basically say that um, BQ scan is a very reasonable thing to do. And in fact, some say it is the, the study of choice. Now, in our, As long as you empty the bladder quickly, right? Yeah, well, you can do that with a catheter right. you know, if you wanted to. Although this, all this is kind of theoretical, I, but let's get that stuff right. out of there. The, actually, though, today during the discussion... Uh, some of the doctors who are the faculty basically said they would not agree with that and they would think that a um, CT angiogram is the study of choice here. So there's clearly a debate about this. And even though one society says one thing, you know, I'll, I'll try to give you some stuff in the notes here to kind of um, show you what we have. But uh, there's also actually the option for an MRI. But... Um, Obviously, we don't have very much. That's without literature at this point, yeah, isn't it, Rick? Yeah, I, mean, is. I mean, I mean, that's that's very weak. We're talking about MRIs, you know, more and more in women who are pregnant for you know appendicitis and things like that. Right. And especially now that there are, are faster and faster uh, MRIs, where the, these things are becoming more practical. But in any case, 
what the question is here, uh, what is this doctor asking? Should I do the uh, workup? Or Well, what he's really asking is what is his protection here now that he's gone through these various layers? And by the way, they don't, experts don't always agree. But I think that if you have one uh, perinatologist who says, here's what I recommend, I think that's very, very strong uh, support for what you do. Well, I would think so too. And in this case, they did a CTA which was negative, thank God, because the worst thing would be have a subsegmental finding. Well, you know, it's interesting <laughs> about that because it came up today. We had a paper that basically shows that, at least in most people, the risk of bleeding exceeds the risk of a clot uh, being generated from uh, someplace if you have a normal leg scan. So that, in fact, a subsegmental clot in a person who has no clots in their legs on serial examination, is at more risk for bleeding from warfarin from our treatment, right. than they are from the sub- subsegmental clot. But the caveat <clears throat> is you can't have any clots in your legs. Yeah. And, you know, there's also the issue of, well, do you have any clots in your pelvis, which are not showing up yeah. by the ultrasound? Yeah, but we're not going to find those uh, with, with our testing at, at this moment but, in time. But we generally think that, uh, oh, yes, go ahead and treat. And uh, that's kind of like not so clear, particularly in subsegmentals. Gregory, it is uh, 70 minutes and 71 minutes into this thing. Do you want to talk about any beverages? Yes, I am going to talk about a beverage. But I, but but I'm I'm going to talk about one of my one of my favorites again. We're wandering, we're wandering into uh, Sonoma County, and I want to point out something which I we started three or four months ago about the fact that snob appeal in wine is absolutely top level. Again, Ernest and Julio, remember the boys down, down by the schoolyard, Ernest yeah. and Julio. Ernest and Julio, again, score big. They own uh, four or five major wineries under other names, which if people actually knew that, they'd go crazy. But Ernest and Julio are now putting out some of their own top-shelf stuff. Under their name? Under their name. Ernest and Julio Gallo, the 2010 Chardonnay. This is Northern Sonoma. Uh, And this this is a top-shelf. This is the kind of stuff that fights with the best stuff coming from Germany and France, the best. And and uh, so the 2010 Chardonnay, Ernest and Julio, Northern Sonoma, it ain't cheap, but it is ra- it, the, the guy who rates these things and is carrying on the discussion says, you know, one of the great wines of California. All right, what's not cheap? 50 bucks a bottle. Yeah, that, 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 don't, don't even talk about it. No, let me say, now, Rick. Does it come Rick, in a box? It does not come in a box, but I'll, I'll, I'll have you know that when I was in uh, uh, Germany last month, some of the finest German wines now have screw tops. Oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, all even, the, I, even I know that. Well, the screw top thing is now taken over everywhere, and, and uh, the Germans have done a lot of research on this, and they say it keeps the wine better for longer. And uh, you remember when you and I were kids, everything with a screw top, was like a fortified wine or a Thunderbird. Boone's Farm. Boone's Farm. <laughs> yeah. Most people have no idea what the hell we're Annie talking Green about. Annie Greensprings, right? Yeah, 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 all that kind of stuff. No, the uh, screw top is here to stay. All right, well, that winds us up for this month, for June. Yeah, uh, 
2013. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye.